Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, November 10th, 2023. Today, we have a forecast of mostly cloudy. Highs will get into the mid-50s. Tonight, it will dip down into the 30s. The weekend, it looks, again, like a mix of sunshine and clouds. Highs on both Saturday and Sunday will only get into the 40s, and lows overnight will get almost below freezing. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's numbers game, the midday drawing numbers were 9, 5, 4, and 9. For the evening drawing that day, we have numbers 9, 4, 2, and 4. The mass cash drawing on Thursday, numbers were 11, 13, 22, 24, and 32. Wednesday's Powerball drawing. The numbers were 14, 21, 33, 39, 62, and the extra ball of number 20. And finally, for the Mega Millions drawing on Tuesday, we have numbers 3, 11, 33, 42, 52, and the extra ball of number 20. The lead story on page one of the newspaper today is headlined, Can't Build This Collection. Mass Bill Aims to Improve Ebook Access by Clara Cho of the Boston University Statehouse Program. Massachusetts librarians are calling for more affordability and flexibility in obtaining licenses for digital content. A proposal Cape Cod librarians say would benefit visually impaired patrons and save them time and money. A bill filed with the Massachusetts legislature would require publishers provide ebooks and digital audiobooks to libraries at consumer prices and include an option to purchase a license that never expires. Usually, libraries pay five to six times the consumer cost for licenses, which can expire after one to two years in contrast to physical books, where libraries have discounts, according to the Massachusetts Library Association. We pay so much more money than the public does, but then not only are we paying more, we don't get to keep the book. Jennifer Pickett, the acting assistant director and reference librarian at Brooks Free Library in Harwich, said, For us in libraries, it's just extremely frustrating. You can't build this collection the way you would with a physical collection. Filed by Representative Ruth B. Balzer, a Democrat from Newton, the measure aims to improve library access to electronic books and digital audiobooks, addressing the challenges that libraries face in maintaining access to digital content, and ensuring that licensing and contractual agreements between libraries and publishers contain fair and equitable terms. After a certain amount of time, we continually have to repurchase the same materials if we want to have them permanently in our collections, said Melanie McKenzie, the library director at Easton Public Library. Fewer and fewer publishers are offering permanent lending models. So again, we're constantly having to re-spend the same money on the same books over and over again. 
These challenges affect people with visual impairments who rely on font sizes or those who cannot physically visit libraries. We want to make sure that libraries can continue to meet their mission of improved access in the 21st century, Balzer said at a recent hearing. If a company does license with libraries in Massachusetts, the terms have to be fair, and we want to make sure that libraries have full access to this material. Other benefits of improved access to electronic content include environmental advantages. Kids in school today do most of their research online, Pickett said. They get the Chromebooks, they have the technology skills, and it should be cheaper since we're not printing books and we don't have to recycle the paper. There are lots of good things about ebooks. The redrafted bill was based on a popular Maryland bill, which was followed by a lawsuit filed by the Association of American Publishers. Balzer's updated proposal is said to adhere to federal regulations. However, opponents say the bill remains in disagreement with the U.S. Copyright Act and could diminish the value of authors' intellectual property. Terry Hart, the general counsel for the Association of American Publishers, opposes the bill. If enacted, this legislation would devalue the intellectual property of authors and harm their right to seek market compensation, Hart said. This legislation threatens the entire creative economy that is so critical to Massachusetts and the nation because they can be easily copied, made perfect copies, make unlimited number of copies. Despite the challenges and opposition, libraries continue to commit to improving access to electronic content, driven by the core mission to provide information and knowledge to community members. We want to educate the people of our towns in our states. We want to share information, and we want them to be able to read, Pickett said. I know that people need to be paid, but there are other ways to do it, and I just really hope that the organizations can work together and different entities can do something that's for the good of everyone. Candidate announces White House run in Plymouth by Hannah Morse of the Patriot Ledger. Dateline Plymouth. America is at a crossroads, says David J. Stuckenberg, who launched his 2024 Republican presidential campaign in Plymouth on Wednesday. Either the country and its citizens can seek further into a decline and be scooped up by a tyrannical power, he said, or voters can choose a leader who, for over at least the next four years, can offer unity, stability, and new ideas to fight for the country's future. Stuckenberg, a 42-year-old Air Force Reserve Major from Florida, who co-founded a Tampa-based green tech company, says he's the only person for the job. The 2024 presidential election distills not just to the future of this nation, but to its survival, Stuckenberg said. Joined by his wife, Shannon, and their five children at the first Pilgrim House on Layden Street, Stuckenberg said he chose the location because it was a safe harbor for those fleeing religious persecution from England. This is a beautiful place, and what started here does not have to be finished in this generation, or the next, or even the generations beyond that, he said. The now-or-never sense of urgency defined much of his 35-minute speech, which made references to the late President Ronald Reagan, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, and Marvel Comics' Avengers. 
Stuckenberg was introduced by the Reverend Kevin Jessup, who runs a global ministry that seeks to restore Judean Christian values to the moral and civic framework on a local, state, national, and international level. Stuckenberg repeatedly referred to threats of tyranny that lie in wait for an opportunity to pounce on the U.S. He clarified in an interview with the Patriot Ledger that he was referring to China and the country's mission to be central to international affairs by 2049. Certain countries seek the destruction of freedom's last safe harbor. We are that safe harbor, Stuckenberg said. A nation at strife with itself cannot resist evil. It will surrender to the will of others from exhaustion. A weak and demoralized nation is a nation that cannot stand for liberty. A broken nation is a fertile ground that cultivates history's strong men and tyrants. If elected, Stuckenberg said he wants to cut taxes by 33% across the board, shut down the northern and southern borders by his third day in office using National Guard troops, and implement a registration system for undocumented immigrants in which those who can offer advantage and benefit to the United States can remain in the country. When asked what led him to decide to run for president and why he announced it now, Stuckenberg said he was struck by what his 18-year-old son Tim said September 11th this year, a few days after Stuckenberg's 42nd birthday. They talked about former FBI agent John O'Neill, who had tried to warn officials about al-Qaeda and was killed in the terrorist attacks while in a new role as chief of security at the World Trade Center. Stuckenberg asked his son what he thought of O'Neill, what he thought O'Neill would say today. Tim responded, no matter how small the odds, how slim the chance, you have to try. I've heard the sound of the drumbeats coming for America's freedom, and I've been watching them close, closer, and closer, and closer, decade after decade, as our military leaders and our presidents struggle to articulate a grand vision to create strength and power and stability for the United States, to let it be that rock that nations can rely on, and we're out of time, Stuckenberg said. After leaving Massachusetts, Stuckenberg said he was heading to Iowa to start campaigning in all of its 99 counties. Harry sentenced after manslaughter conviction by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. A Barnstable Superior Court judge on Wednesday sentenced Eli Perry, age 43, the Mashpee man who was convicted of manslaughter in the 2017 killing of his father, to no more than 20 years, but not less than 19 years, in state prison. When considering the sentence, Superior Court Judge Mark Gildea weighed the arguments of the defense and prosecution, the seriousness of the crime, the evidence presented during the trial, as well as statements made by the family during the sentencing hearing, he said. I may not, however, undertake to punish Mr. Perry for any conduct other than for which he has been convicted in this particular case, Gildea said. Mr. Perry was not convicted of first or second degree murder, but rather of manslaughter. The sentence imposed will be based upon a manslaughter conviction and not murder, Gildea said. Perry was also found guilty of aggravated assault and battery with a dangerous weapon causing serious bodily injury, assault and battery with a dangerous weapon on a person 60 or older, unlawful disposal of a body, and larceny of a firearm, 
Those charges also carry sentences, but are not compounded on the manslaughter sentence due to time Perry has already served. What is the response of the Perry family? At the hearing, family members recounted before the court fond memories of Eli Perry's father, Raymond Perry, and asked that Eli Perry receive the maximum sentence allowed by the court. I hope people knew I never had a relationship with Eli and I never considered him my father, said a family member reading a statement by one of Eli Perry's daughters. It's Eli's fault that my grandpa won't be here to walk me down the aisle at my wedding or meet his future grandchildren. Cape and Islands District Attorney Rob Galabois believes his office had enough evidence to support a murder conviction, but was grateful the jury rejected a self-defense claim and held Eli Perry responsible for his father's killing, Galabois said after the hearing to the Times. Ray Perry was brutally killed inside of his own home at the hands of his own son, Galabois said. The judge went beyond what the guidelines for sentencing suggested in light of the brutality, the circumstances of this case, and hearing from the devastation that's been suffered by Ray Perry's family. During his testimony on November 1st, Eli Perry told the Superior Court jury his addiction to drugs rapidly progressed and his behavior became increasingly more erratic in the days leading up to his father's November 2017 killing at 37 Riverside Road in Mashpee. Eduardo Masferrer, the defense attorney, told the court that his client's drug addiction was the only motivating factor leading up to Raymond Perry's death adding manslaughter was the appropriate verdict. He asked Gildea to impose a sentence of eight to 10 years. The driving force from our perspective was the fact that Mr. Perry was a drug addict. That's what was guiding his actions that night, Masferrer said. Mr. Perry's untreated substance abuse disorder demonstrates what happens to people when they act under the influence of drugs. Cape and Islands Assistant District Attorney Jessica Alumba a prosecutor for the case, said the knife wounds Raymond Perry sustained to his neck would have taken a substantial amount of force to inflict. It was a particularly brutal death, Alumba said. The defendant's conduct following the death of his father is also particularly egregious. He hogtied him, wrapped him in a rug, threw him on a truck bed, and then drove around deciding where to dispose of his body. What events led to the death of Raymond Perry? After Eli Perry killed his father, he and his then-girlfriend, Paige Malone, who testified against him on October 26th under a cooperation agreement, wrapped the body in a rug, loaded it onto a truck, and buried the body near an off-Cape Cranberry bog, according to court records. After disposing of the body, Perry and Malone returned to his father's house and attempted to hide the evidence by painting the walls and laying new flooring, court records showed. Malone said her boyfriend forced her to hide evidence and dispose of his father's body. Raymond Perry was reported missing on December 1st, 2017, but records indicate friends and family had not been in touch with him since November 26th that year. On December 18th, 2017, Investigators found Raymond Perry's body buried under a mulch pile at Old Forge Farm in Plymouth. His hands and feet were bound with zip ties, and he was covered with a rug 
that authorities determined came from his home in Mashpee. Eli Perry and Malone were later arrested and charged in February 2018. Malone pleaded guilty in March 2019 to being an accessory after the fact to murder, misleading police, and unlawful disposal of a human body, serving five years in prison and sentenced to three years of probation. A family member who read a statement on behalf of Eli Perry's other daughter said he was not involved in their lives growing up and that Raymond Perry, their grandfather, was the person who took care and looked after them. My grandpa was the best grandpa we could ask for, our best friend, and our biggest supporter, and my life will forever be altered because of what Eli did, she said. Mr. Fire's new website meant to give more community info by Heather McCarran. The fire department was one of the first in town to have an online presence, but we did that on our own, Fire Chief Robert Moran said. Now the site has a new, updated look, and it's linked up with other parts of the town government. The department's newly upgraded website, brewster-ma.gov fire, was launched on November 1st, joining the rest of the town departments on the Civic Plus platform. Just as it takes time and care to get a good campfire going, it's taken many weeks of work to get the Brewster Fire Department's latest means of communicating with the public up and running. What will a resident of Brewster find on the new website? In addition to informing visitors about the department's daily operations, strategic planning, call volume, and recent news, the site features inspection, prevention, fire safety, and community risk reduction resources the department offers. We do believe that it's much more user-friendly and provides some updated information, said Moran. The new platform gives people the ability to find information about the fire department, access permits, and contact various members, and see scheduling for community training events, he said. There is also information about emergency medical services, staffing, ambulance billing, community fire and EMS training programs, and photos of the department's specialized vehicle fleet, according to a release. The new site also allows residents to register to receive emergency notifications and important updates, to obtain burn permits, access online forms, and find contact information for department staff members. The updated fire department site is part of an ongoing effort over the past year to make all of the town's resources more easily accessible to residents and visitors and to achieve uniformity and consistency. In August, the town similarly launched a new police site and the town relaunched its main website in March. Moran gives much of the credit for the new website to firefighter EMT Emily Higgins and town project manager Connor Kenny. Together, he said, Higgins and Kenny devoted hours of time to bringing the project to fruition. The Civic Plus platform is used by many communities around the nation, including most Cape Cod towns. Avoid charity scams this Veterans Day. It pays to do homework before making donations. By Mary Walrath Holdridge of USA Today. With Veterans Day coming up, many of us are turning our minds to ways of honoring service members and their families. Making a charitable donation is a great way to give back. But would-be donors should keep in mind that not every so-called charity is the same. 
while there are plenty of respected foundations working to improve the lives of veterans, active service members, and their families, there are also bad actors looking to take advantage of altruistic people and the people they want to help. So it pays to do a little extra due diligence before sending that payment. According to a warning from the FTC, charity scammers are known to target not only people looking to make a contribution for Veterans Day, but veterans and their families themselves. Here are things to look out for when donating this Veterans Day to avoid falling victim to a scam. Don't trust caller ID as a form of identity verification. Scammers can manipulate what appears on your screen to make it look as if the call is coming from a recognized person or organization. Don't click links and messages or emails without confirming the sender's bona fides. Check a charity's online presence before donating. Google the name of the organization and look for an official website and contact information. Check that the website is secure and keep an eye out for bad reviews or a lack of additional information. Another easy way to do this is to type the name of the charity along with the words fraud or scam. Beware of selling tactics such as pressuring you to donate immediately, promising you will receive prizes or other compensation, contacting you repeatedly or out of the blue, or insisting you have previously donated, though you have no memory of doing so. Beware of suspicious payment methods such as wire transfers, gift cards, cash, or cryptocurrency. The safest way to pay is using a credit card so that your banking institution can help if things go awry. If you are contacted with requests for a donation, Ask for the charity's name, website, phone number, address, email, and details about its mission statement, who and how many people it serves, what percentage of donations go directly to programs, and where you can find further disclosures on its financials. Check if the charity is registered or has credentials with your state charity regulator, the Better Business Bureau, Wise Giving Alliance, AARP, Charity Navigator, Charity Watch, GuideStar, or the IRS tax-exempt organization search. Double-check the name of the charity to ensure it isn't a suspiciously close variation on a trusted organization. And get a receipt after donating and check your bank statement to make sure things are consistent. One easy way to ensure your money is going where you want is to stick with well-established charitable organizations. In many cases, you can donate your time or skills if you don't have cash to spare. Luckily, resources like Charity Watch track information, like what percentage of each donation goes directly to the people and programs aided by the charity, called a program percentage. Here are some respected organizations to consider for Veterans Day. Semper Fi and America's Fund provides case management, connection, and lifetime support for all branches of the U.S. Armed Forces, with a 91% program percentage. Wounded Warriors Family Support aims to provide a better quality of life to military personnel and families of those who were injured or killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. It has an 88% program percentage. Canines for Warriors trains shelter dogs to become service animals for warriors with post-traumatic stress, 
traumatic brain injury, or military sexual trauma. It has a 70% program percentage. The Fisher House Foundation builds and furnishes houses and provides scholarships to military families and children. It has a 91% program percentage. Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, or TAPS, offers 24-7 tragedy help to anyone who has lost a military loved one. It has an 83% program percentage. Hope for the Warriors provides support on transition, health, wellness, peer engagement, and connections to community resources with an 86% program percentage. The Gary Sinise Foundation creates and supports programs that entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and builds communities with an 87% program percentage. The Bob Woodruff Family Foundation works to find, fund, and shape innovative programs that help our veterans, service members, and their families thrive. It has a 76% program percentage. Folds of Honor Foundation provides financial assistance for the education of spouses and dependent children of servicemen and women who are killed or permanently disabled while serving. It has a 91% program percentage. Home for Our Troops builds and donates specially adapted custom homes for the most severely injured post 9-11 veterans with an 84% program percentage and National Military Family Association supports military families through stressful times by providing children's and family programs, financial help, advice, and advocacy with an 86% program percentage. The Ask Carolyn column today is headlined, A Couple Tired of the Annual Travel Wants to Quit Family Christmas. Dear Carolyn, my spouse and I are facing a dilemma with how to handle holidays this year. We live quite a distance from both our families. It's an eight-hour drive to my in-laws and a four-hour drive to my parents' place. For six of the last seven years, with 2020 being the exception, we've dedicated every bit of our personal time off and travel budget to attending family holidays. In addition to the costs of travel, we also have had to pay to board our dog each time and have added significant mileage to our aging car. We feel it's unfair that we're the ones who consistently make the effort to attend family gatherings, while others rarely travel to see us. This has left us feeling unbalanced, and we want to opt out of the family holidays this year. How can we communicate our decision to our families without causing unnecessary hurt or misunderstanding? Signed, Unbalanced. Dear Unbalanced, the best argument for securing your own Christmas and peace of mind isn't the punishing length of the drives or the number of years you've made them, or your limited vacation day allotments, or your inflexible budget, or the mileage on your car or your dog. It's not fairness or effort or balance or how much you do or don't love your family or how hurtfully misunderstood you are or aren't in your campaign to stay home. Your best argument is the one you prove you've embraced by not bothering to trout out any of these arguments or defenses to anyone, certainly not to me. It's your life. That's your best argument. You stay home if you want to stay home. This is how you say it to your families. We're having Christmas at home this year. That's it. I swear. No apologies. I'm not saying they won't push back, flip out, rend garments, or revise wills. 
I'm saying the moment you believe your holidays are yours to celebrate as you see fit and start speaking like someone who can't be guilt-tripped out of that belief by anyone, the matter is closed. Though if they're welcome to come celebrate with you, then cushion the blow by inviting them, of course. Dear Carolyn, my fiancé and I have hit a roadblock while planning our wedding. This is my first marriage and his second. I have a very clear vision about what I want the wedding to be like. My fiancé is fine with allowing me to take the lead, as he has already had one wedding. I would like a small, sophisticated, adults-only wedding. The difficulty is that my fiancé has three elementary-aged children. The kids mostly live with their mom, but I get along with them fine. I thought adults only meant just that, but my fiancé thought it meant adults only except for the kids. We're at a crossroads. We've put deposits down on places that are not kid-friendly. He is adamant the kids be there. How do we move forward from here? Signed, Snagged. Dear Snagged, you include the kids and forfeit deposits as needed. Oh my goodness, a roadblock. If your view of what you want your marriage to be like is as fixed and rigid as your wedding vision, then please reconsider for everyone's sake. As Ferris warned us, life moves pretty fast. We've reached the halfway point of our program today, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Margaret Ann Beach, Dateline Peabody. Margaret Ann Beach, aged 90 of Peabody, formerly of Centerville and Worcester, died Tuesday, November 7th at Brooksby Village in Peabody. Born in Worcester on December 3rd, 1932, she was the daughter of the late Daniel and Anna Wilkins O'Leary. Peggy grew up in Worcester and after marrying, raised her own family there. She loved children, and as her own five grew older, she worked for the Worcester Public Schools, teaching special needs preschoolers. She and her late husband, Jim, retired to Cape Cod and lived in Centerville for 20 years. She was an active parishioner of Christ the King Church of Worcester and Our Lady of Victory Parish in Centerville. In addition to being a devoted mother, grandmother, and friend, she was always creative and never tired of perfecting new skills, including sewing, ceramics, upholstery, and gardening. In retirement, she learned to golf, an activity she shared with her husband, an avid golfer. Peggy was the beloved wife of the late James H. Beach and devoted mother of many. She was also a cherished grandmother and great-grandmother. She was the loving sister of the late Joan Foran and is also survived by several nieces and nephews. Her funeral mass will be celebrated in Our Lady of the Assumption Church on the corner of Grove and Salem Streets in Linfield on Tuesday, November 14th at 10 a.m. Interment will take place at a later date at the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. Arrangements are in the care of the McDonald Funeral Home in Wakefield. In lieu of flowers, donations in Peggy's memory may be made to Catholic Charities of Worcester County, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, or a charity of your own choosing. Thomas Paul Pavau, Dateline Mashpee. Thomas Paul Pavau, the shoe man, age 85, of Mashpee, and formerly of Falmouth and Brockton, 
passed away on Thursday, November 2nd, at the McCarthy Care Center. Born in Fall River, he was the son of the late Angelina Souza and Louis Pavau. Owner of Sea Spray Shoes and Tom's Stridewright Shoes for over 30 years, he ran several locations with Falmouth being the flagship. Many in town still remember buying shoes for all occasions from him. A heart of gold, always a positive attitude and a smile. A true fighter living with dialysis. Retirement was enjoyed with family. He loved gardening, especially his roses. An avid sports fan, he loved all New England teams, with the Celtics being his favorite. He had an affinity for cars and enjoyed going for drives by the water. He was a longtime parishioner of St. Anthony's Catholic Church. Preceded in death by his first wife of 49 years, Janice Pavau, he was the devoted father of Sally, Marcia, and Christopher, loving grandfather as well. He was also preceded in death by his second wife, Joyce Allen, and was a stepfather to several and several step-grandchildren. Visitation will be held at Chapman Funerals and Cremations on West Falmouth Highway on Monday, November 13th from 9 to 11 a.m. A memorial service will follow at 11. Burial will be at St. Anthony's Cemetery in East Falmouth. In lieu of flowers, remembrances may be made to the McCarthy Care Center on Service Road in East Sandwich. Shirley Howland Canning, Dateline East Sandwich. Shirley Howland Canning, age 80, of East Sandwich, passed away peacefully on October 30th with her dear husband of almost 60 years by her side. Shirley grew up in West Barnstable and graduated from Barnstable High School in 1960. She met the love of her life, Richard Canning Jr., in 1955 at a square dance in East Sandwich, and they were together from that day on. They wed in 1963, after she finished her training at Wilfrid Academy in Boston. In addition to being a gifted hairstylist, Shirley was an avid gardener, accomplished seamstress, master baker, talented painter, and crafter. Shirley was predeceased by her parents, Myron and Barbara Howland of Bradenton, Florida. She is survived by her beloved husband, Richard Canning Jr. of East Sandwich, her treasured children, her cherished grandchildren, and her adored nieces and nephews. She is also survived by her sister, Elizabeth Lewis. Shirley was a consummate hostess, and her family and friends will always remember the warmth of her greetings and the beauty of her parties. She will be missed dearly by all who were blessed enough to know and love her. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made in Shirley's honor to capekidmeals.org. A celebration of life for the family will be planned at a future date. For online condolences, please visit the website of NickersonBornFH.com. Award-winning columnist Sarah Lee Perra lives in Marston's Mills. Her column runs the first Friday of each month. Due to an editing and production error, it was omitted in the November 3rd issue and is running the second Friday for November only. And here is that column. It's headlined, Remembering the Good Things Along with the Bad. I received many emails from readers saying something like, Your columns are a breath of fresh air. I need a break from world news. 
To my much-loved supportive readers, this time I can't offer you that break. I always speak to you from my heart. Today is no different. I've been to Israel twice. During one visit, when I was 21 in 1972, I lived on a kibbutz for a month and then traveled the country for two months. As my plane approached its landing, I could see the land of Israel. In unison, the passengers sang the Israeli national anthem, Hatikva, the hope. Although I no longer follow the religion's practices, I somehow identify as a Jewish person. So as people sang, Liyot Amshofsi Bar Tuzunu, which means to be a free people in our land, I felt, I don't know, a sense of belonging, maybe. You see, all Jews everywhere are Israeli citizens by right. I confirmed this from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website. But along with that sense of place comes separation. Suppose I was to think Israel belongs to the Jewish people. Everyone else, get out. When I arrived by bus at Kibbutz Evron in northern Israel near the Lebanese border, I was directed to place my feet so that they were exactly in the same sandy footprints of the person before me. This was because there were landmines. In Israel, my insidious seeds of prejudice began to sprout. And like most prejudice, it was based on fear. I grew scared of others, meaning people who are not like me, in whatever cockamamie way I decide is different, be they of Arab descent, or a male, or young, or even tall. On my first night, a kibbutznik named Reuven took me on a walk. We were circled by eight men on motorcycles who were speaking in Lebanese, which my new friend translated to me in whispers. They were threatening to rape and then kill me. Apparently, my partner spoke words that stopped them from attacking me. Essentially, he agreed with them that the American woman would be a luscious prize. He did that to protect me. If he hadn't agreed with them, or if he fought back with threats, that would have escalated the terror. And so, that was the beginning of, I hate to admit, my fear of all people from Lebanon. On a kibbutz, all roles are in a continual state of flux. Someone who's a cook one day could be a farmer the next. Children live in their own cooperatives, although they spend time with their parents in late afternoons. I remember being tested. Oh, was this awful. I was assigned to be a butcher. On my table in the kitchen was half of a cow. Nobody thought I could handle the job of cutting apart this cow to make individual cuts of beef. I didn't breathe through my mouth with enormous determination to override my disgust of what seemed to be the same as cutting human flesh, I sliced and sliced and sliced. Yes, I passed that test. So I was then assigned to watch over the kindergarten children. They had tubs of creamed chocolate, spreadable like margarine, to slather on rye bread. The children didn't speak English, and my Hebrew was limited, but I'll tell you, the satisfaction noises of mmm and ah didn't need words. Reuven did a horrible thing. One morning, while I was still asleep in the women's quarters, I heard him talking in Hebrew with other men as they stood at my bed. I was mortified. I kept my eyes closed. I didn't know what he was saying, but I heard my name. It turned out he'd also have these conversations during meals in the communal dining hall. Another kibbutznik took me aside 
and told me that Reuven was intending to humiliate me by inventing sexual exploits he and I were supposedly engaging in. His cohorts believed every word of it. So did the rets of the kibbutzim. Now, since it took just a small group of Lebanese men for me to become biased against everyone from Lebanon, wouldn't I then develop a bias against every kibbutznik? But I didn't. Talk about unfair favoritism toward Jews, another form of prejudice. I abruptly ended my stay at Kibbutz Evron and spent months exploring the country. One night, I was at a little bar three floors above a market in the ancient walled city of Jerusalem. It was dark and smoky with people of various Arab heritage. There was one fellow dressed in a long white robe who seemed non-aggressive. You see my prejudice? My assumption must have been that all people of any Arab ancestry were aggressive. He didn't speak English, but we shared the vocabulary of playing gin rummy. We drank shots of Arak, a brandy that tastes like licorice, ick, until late into the night. He had a machine gun by his side. I slept in hostels, bare-boned small buildings with cots. Before falling asleep, I'd count the number of scorpions on the ceiling. Small hatchets were stored by every bed. I hiked along the Negev Desert and Mount Sinai. There was no vegetation, just rocks. The biggest drag? No ladies' rooms, just stone slabs. Oy! I saw what's called harems of wild horses. Camels, too. On occasion, there were groups of Bedouins, nomadic Arabs of the desert, all dressed in long black robes. Oddly, I wasn't afraid of these travelers. One woman offered me water from a carved-out gourd, which I gratefully accepted. No English was spoken. Kindness doesn't need to be put into words. The first step to toning down my biases is to be aware that I have them in the first place. If I don't come clean and acknowledge my prejudice, then I'm just a racist. I hope that someday, when I meet someone of Arab descent, instead of thinking about the Lebanese motorcyclists, I'll remember the Bedouin nomad who gave me water. East Ham Turnip Festival returns for 20th year celebrating root veggie by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. While renovations are still underway at Nauset High School, the East Ham Library staff isn't letting a lack of location stop them from hosting their annual East Ham Turnip Festival on November 18th. This year, the festival is celebrating 20 years of honoring East Ham's beloved purple, white, and green root vegetable. Similar to last year's celebration, various satellite locations across town, including the Orleans Farmer's Market, which will be selling this year's turnips, will host turnip-themed events throughout the day. It's exciting because it's a milestone anniversary, and I think it's a testament to our resilience. Mary Ann Sinopoli, chairperson of the Eastham Turnip Festival Committee and outreach librarian for the Eastham Public Library, said, I think it's important for the community to see cultural events that can be celebrated even with challenges like COVID-19 or renovations at our venue. We're anticipating success in 2023. Success measured by community coming together to celebrate at harvest time and our agricultural history. The Turnip Festival began in 2003, when Patricia Ford, then Assistant Director of the East Ham Library, and other members of library staff and volunteers wanted to create a festival for the town of East Ham. 
Way back in the day, Eastham grew more turnips than anywhere else in the nation, Sinopoli explained. The Eastham turnip, in particular, was known for its mild and sweet taste. The purists here and the farmers will tell you that cold frost impacts the flavor of the turnip, and they're really sweet after harvesting after a frost, she said. Outside of the turnip, Eastham also produced a lot of asparagus, but the turnip proved to be a more marketable choice. I'm personally grateful that they decided to focus on the turnip, because you can turn a quip with the name turnip, Sinopoli joked. Asparagus, not so much. It's hard to find a word that rhymes with asparagus. So Team Turnip and the festival were born, and 20 years later, they're still celebrating on the same day. It's always been held the Saturday before Thanksgiving, and the reason for that is spotlighting the turnips, Sinopoli said. That is about the time when turnips are harvested. Along the way, the festival went through some changes. Seeing upticks in crowds that made their original venue at Chapel and the Pines too small, a pandemic and renovations take over their long-standing home at Nauset High School, they've had to adapt. But throughout it all, the spotlight on food has remained. Taste of Turnip Day, the festival's culinary event, celebrates the creations of local restaurants. In the beginning, judges and visitors would sample dishes made by locals, but as the festival grew and the Board of Health began overseeing it, local restaurants became stars of the show. The winner would be awarded a turnip trophy. Yes, an actual trophy shaped like a turnip. However, with the pandemic, Taste of Turnip Day became a way of showing love to the local food community. As a way to support our local restaurants, we promoted any restaurant that puts something with turnip on their menu on the day that would have been Turnip Fest date, Sinopoli said. We had about 20 the first year, and we continued that each year since because it was a big hit with the restaurants. This year, nearly 30 restaurants will take part in Taste of Turnip Day. Though the official list of dishes wasn't finalized at press time, some standouts from last year include the East Ham Turnip Curry, Raisin and Scallion Pancake from Abroad in Orleans, and the Caramelized Onion, Cheddar, and East Ham Turnip Croissant from Hole in One, with locations in East Ham and Orleans. Folks who love the flavor of turnip could eat their way across town from breakfast through dinner because there was something for every part of the day, Sinopoli said. Outside of Taste of Turnip Day, Turnip-themed events will take place across four locations. Chapel in the Pines, the Eastham Public Library, the Swift Daily House, and the Schoolhouse Museum. Festivities begin at 10 a.m. with Turn Up for Tool Time at the Swift Daily House, a new collaboration between the festival and the Eastham Historical Society, and Tracing Our Roots, an exhibit about Eastham's rich agricultural history at the Schoolhouse Museum. From there, a turnip-filled day of fun will follow with live music, a magic show, a guess-the-weight turnip competition, and even a blessing of the turnips from part-time Eastham resident and GBH journalist Bob Say. We have a whole host of various themed activities and amusements for the young and the young at heart, Sinopoli said. It's multi-generational fun. There's something for everyone. 
The Eastham Turnip Festival is from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. on November 18th and is free to attend. Tis the sweetest sweet season. Here are a few Cape Places to Try Dessert by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. For a child, dessert is the best part of the menu. When you're choosing from the same few meals, typically some form of noodle with butter or red sauce, a burger or some form of chicken, dessert tends to be sweet salvation. But as I age, I'm noticing myself ordering an ice cream or a cake less since the entrees I choose have drastically improved. Still, sometimes a sweet treat is exactly what you need to end your night off right. We asked our readers where they say yes to dessert around the Cape and the islands, and the answers did not disappoint. We added a few staff favorites also to the desserts recommended at our Facebook page, Good Stuff at Cape Cod Restaurants. The page is free to join and focuses on all restaurant news, so if you have some to share or need a restaurant recommendation, the group is ready to share. Hatchville Baking Company in Mashpee. It's where to go for some yummy cookies, per Facebooker Lori De Palma Ruggieri. With six monthly flavors, there's always something new to try on the menu. This month, chocolate chip, slated brown butter, chocolate peanut butter, Rice Krispie Treat, Iced Oatmeal with Cranberry and Orange, and a Gluten-Free Chocolate Chip are the featured six. Hatchville Baking Company is located in Mashpee Commons. They're open from 10 to 4 on Thursday to Saturday and 10 to 3 on Sunday. PB Boulangerie in South Wellfleet. Brownie lovers, this one's for you. At PB Boulangerie, the Carla Brownie is apparently something special. Filled with caramel mousse, pecans, cocoa nougatine, and more, these little slices seem like a little French delight. Fun fact, the sweet treat is named after supermodel and wife to former French president Nicolas Sarkozy, Carla Bruni. PB Boulangerie's bakery is open from 7 to 5 Wednesdays through Mondays and is located on LeCount Hollow Road in South Wellfleet. One Facebooker, Kelly Gall, commented, The Ocean House restaurant in Dennisport. Anything. Looking at the menu, it's clear why. Offering warm Dutch apple pie, creme brulee, and a chocolate bag sundae for two, packed with brownies, caramel sauce, gelato, and more, they seem to have dessert down. They even have a vegan and gluten-free option, too, so everyone can enjoy something sweet. The Ocean House is located on Old Wharf in Dennisport and is open for fall from Thursday to Saturday, November 9th to 25th. Blue in Mashpee. Another place to find rich and perfect desserts is Blue, also in Mashpee Commons, where executive chef Frédéric Fufu came from his native France and, after working in the New York City restaurant scene, started the cheery bistro that goes simply as Blue. French desserts excel in the paradox of being both decadently rich and light as air in the same bite. All of Blue's desserts are $12 each and include, according to the online menu, caramel arborio rice pudding with praline whipped cream and berries, raspberry chambord creme brulee with chocolate fudge cake, and sea salt caramel apple French cheesecake. 
Tumi Ceviche in Hyannis. The Tres Leches at Tumi Ceviche is another reader favorite, with Anne Lanza calling it out of this world. The Peruvian Italian restaurant, with its decor of hand-painted tiles and pottery of the region, is located on Main Street in Hyannis. Stomp in a bog, watch the Pilgrim Monument light up, and more Cape Fun by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Those boots better be made for stomping as the Barnstable Land Trust is hosting a bog stomp at Katuwitz Crocker Neck on November 11th. Led by Gil Newton, a naturalist and Katuwitz local, the 1.5-mile trail covers a beach ecosystem, a salt marsh, and an estuary tucked away in the 97-acre conservation area that is Crocker Neck. I was born in Katuwitz, where I live now, and as a child, I used to walk that area and explore it, Newton said in an interview with the Times. Those early childhood days of exploration are undoubtedly why I decided to go into the field of environmental science and marine ecology. Newton has led the bog-stomping walk for decades, even overseeing the purchases of Crocker Neck for $3 million in 1985 as chair of the Barnstable Conservation Commission. The commission purchased the land to prevent a subdivision along the waterfront. It's really a wonderful feeling to know that this area has been set aside and is preserved so that so many different generations can enjoy it, Newton said. It's just a beautiful place. It's a little bit out of the way, so a lot of people aren't aware of it, and I love to introduce people to this area for the first time. On the hike, participants will get the chance to learn more about the environment and ecosystems around them, wandering through woodlands, wetlands, and, if they're up for it, into the bog. Newton brings people who want to, weather permitting, of course, down on a bog and has people literally sort of jump up and down to feel how spongy the area is on a bog. Sue Dolling Sullivan, Director of Communications and Programming for the Barnstable Land Trust, said, the bog-stomping hike will take place at 10 a.m. on November 11th at the Crocker Neck Conservation Area in Katuit. Admission is $10 per person, and parking information will be sent to registered attendees. To register, go to the website blt.org. Experience the magic of Mozart with the Cape Symphony. For two nights, enjoy the wonders of some of Mozart's greatest works during the Cape Symphony's The Magic of Mozart Concerts on November 11th and 12th. Cape Symphony Concertmaster J. Cosmos Lee will lead the orchestra, and renowned musician Sylvia Berry will play the Viennese Forte Piano. The program consists of Mozart's Overture to the Magic Flute, selections from 12 German dances, Piano Concerto No. 13, and Symphony No. 38, Prague. The Magic of Mozart will commence at 7.30 p.m. on November 11th and 2 p.m. on November 12th at the Barnstable Performing Arts Center on West Main Street in Hyannis. Tickets range from $32 to $72 and can be purchased online at the Cape Symphony's website or by calling the box office. Catch a performance during Open Mic Coffee House at the Muse in Provincetown. The Muse in Provincetown is bringing their open mic in the coffee house back. Stop by every Thursday at 7 p.m., besides Thanksgiving, from now until December 21st to enjoy some top-notch jokes 
and complimentary self-serve coffee from the Wired Puppy. A $5 donation is requested at the door to attend and benefits WOMR, the Provincetown Theater and Coffee House at the Muse. Cynthia Barger's Sleeping in the Dead Girl's Room wins Honor Award by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. It's a time of celebration for two Cape and Islands authors as they took home honor awards from the Massachusetts Center for the Books Mass Book Award Ceremony at the State House in Boston. Provincetown-based poet Cynthia Barger won an honor award in poetry for Sleeping in the Dead Girl's Room, while Martha's Vineyard resident Geraldine Brooks won an honor award in fiction for Horse. Brooks was unable to attend the October 24th ceremony as she had a prior commitment in Bali, according to an email from Ellen Flanagan Kenny, communications associate for the Massachusetts Center for the Book. Brooks did not answer a request for comment from the Cape Cod Times. Brooks also won a Mass Book Award in Fiction in 2009 for her novel People of the Book. Three years before that, she won a Pulitzer Prize for March. I spoke with Barger about her book, a memoir-esque collection of poems inspired by her own mental health experiences and those of her namesake, her Aunt Cynthia, who died by suicide at the age of 18. During our conversation, Barger tells me her aunt was somewhat of a family secret. As a child, she would ask her grandparents and father about the mystery woman in photos around the house, only to be met with a dead end of information. Oh, that's my Cindy, my grandmother would say, Barger said. I would ask, who was this picture of? Oh, that's my Cindy. It was very confusing as a child. What do you mean yours? You know, a lot of identity issues came about as a result of that. Across five years of writing and researching, Barger would try to understand more of the mystery woman whose name she shared and the room she occupied for the first five years of her life. The result is Sleeping in the Dead Girl's Room, a collection of poetry piecing together the story Barger created of her aunt along with her own real-life experiences. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.